It's May 13, 1845. Captain John C. Fremont's third exploratory expedition is camped near Klamath Lake in the Oregon Territory. The sickening thunk of a Hudson's Bay axe cleaving the skull of the sleeping Basil Lagines woke Kit Carson. His response to danger was honed by two decades of living on the knife's edge in the wilderness of the American West. Carson leapt from his blankets and sounded the alarm. Indians are in the camp. The Klamath chieftain had split the skull of Carson's sleeping French-Canadian comrade, and he'd also slaughtered a Delaware hunter named Denny. Another Delaware named Crane jumped up and leveled his rifle at the attackers, only to take five arrows to the body and sink back into his blankets, mortally wounded. Carson, his rifle disabled, hefted a heavy muzzle-loading pistol, and he let fly at the Klamath chief. His ball merely cut the wrist cord securing the Hudson's Bay axe. Others of, Con- of Carson's comrades opened fire, and their aim was true. The warrior fell. Carson would describe him as the bravest Indian I ever saw. If his men had been as brave as himself, we surely would have all been killed. This tribute to a fellow warrior would come a decade later in the clear light of reflection. In the heat of the moment, Carson gave vent to a powerful rage. He seized the fallen HBC axe and swung it down on the fallen Klamath skull over and over until he had, in Fremont's words, knocked it to pieces. The Delaware hunter Segundi lifted the Klamath scalp. The attack had been fended off at the cost of lives of comrades of camp and trail. Come daylight, Carson and Fremont would lead the men out on a ride for revenge. Welcome to the campfire for the inaugural series of the Frontier Partisans podcast. This first one's going to be a four-parter talking about the life and times of Kit Carson, who's probably one of the most famous of all the Frontier Partisans. I kind of prefer to study and, and, and explore the lives of, of less well-known folks than Kit Carson. Just about everybody's heard of him, at least. But in these times, I thought uh, it would be a good place to start because Kit Carson really exemplifies a lot of the characteristics of the frontier and a lot of the things that we're uncomfortable about with our history. And, uh, you know, he's been mythologized since his own time. He was a knight in buckskin and the guy who was the spear point of, of creating a Western America that was safe for less bold souls than he. And then in the 20th century, he became uh, kind of considered a genocidal proto-fascist who, who ethnically cleansed the Navajo and, and other, other tribes. Uh, and, uh, of course, he was neither one of these things. He was a, a man, in many ways, a very ordinary man, doing extraordinary things. And as the historian Paul Andrew Hutton has said, if we look at Kit Carson and feel uncomfortable, that's because we're looking in a mirror. He is us. And I think that that's really true, and that's why I wanted to start here with, with Kit Carson. One of the reasons that Kit Carson was both an ordinary and an extraordinary exemplar of frontier is that he came from the classic frontier culture, the Scots-Irish. They were the culture that emigrated to the Americas mostly in the early part of the 18th century, 
headed straight into the backcountry and set their stamp on the culture that grew up there. They About half of the population of the Appalachian and Trans-Appalachian uh, wilderness in the 18th century was of Scots-Irish descent. And there were other, other peoples there. There were Germans and, and French Huguenots and, and English and, and a variety of others, but they all kind of adapted to that, that very strong Scots-Irish culture that was perfectly adapted to frontier conditions. The Scots-Irish come from the English-Scottish borders originally, and that was the roughest frontier on earth for several hundred years. Think Braveheart, the movie about William Wallace and uh, the Scottish borders where the English were constantly coming across the border and trying to impose their will on the Scots, and the Scots resisted. And that went on for literally centuries, starting around that time in the late 13th and early 14th century. And it went on and on and on, and it bred a culture that was very used to conflict, very used to fighting, very used to privation and, and tough conditions and tough terrain. And, you know, I don't necessarily believe in, in, in genetic memory or that, that frontier conditions were in the DNA of the Scots-Irish, although science may prove that that is, in fact, the case. But certainly there's cultural memory. And this was a culture that came out of generation upon generation upon generation of borderland conflict. They were cattle rustlers. They were raiders. The families along those English-Scottish borders came to be known as the border reavers. And a reaver is just a, a raider. And they would go out and steal each other's cattle. And uh, they were often enlisted in each other's wars, um, in England's wars and Scotland's wars. Their loyalty was was to their clan, and these aren't the Highland clans with the with the, the plaids and and the bagpipes. These are are really kind of extended mafia-like families of very tough, very hard-headed, and very difficult people. And when the English finally imposed their will on that part of the world, they decided to send many of these folks over to Ulster, Northern Ireland, where they were going to plant them as a buffer against the native Irish. That solved a couple of problems. It got rid of the most turbulent people along those English-Scottish borders and, and finally pacified that border. And it gave them a sort of ready-made uh, citizen militia that could take on the Catholic Irish. Most of the Scots-Irish, almost all of the Scots-Irish, were Protestant dissenters. Not quite the same as the, as the Pilgrims, a little flintier than, uh, than most, but they, they had the Calvinist doctrine of, of John Knox behind them. And uh, they were in conflict with the native Irish. And for a variety of, of complicated reasons that, that basically boiled down to economics and, uh, and religion, Many of the Ulster Scots, the Scots-Irish who had, had moved into Ulster, were dissatisfied there and, and in a pattern that would persist over 
the next couple hundred years, they moved further west. In this case, they crossed the Atlantic Ocean to North America. Large numbers, very large numbers, tens of thousands. As the historian David Hackett Fisher points out in his great book, Albion's Seed, Four British Folkways in North America, the so-called Scots-Irish who came to America thus included a double distilled selection of some of the most disorderly inhabitants of a deeply disordered land. The appearance of these immigrants on the streets of Philadelphia marked the start of yet another great folk migration from Britain to America. This was truly a mass migration on a scale altogether different from the movement that had preceded it. So all of a sudden in the early 18th century, you had this giant influx of badass fighting Protestants, most of them pretty poor, middle class of the uh, tradesmen at the, at the, at the height of their, uh, their social scale. And they've all come to Philadelphia in a colony run by, by Quakers and pacifists who wanted absolutely nothing to do with them. So they headed straight into the backcountry, back to the borderlands. That's where they were comfortable. That's where they knew how to operate. And that's where they, well, I almost said put down roots, but part of, of their culture was a kind of, of rootlessness. And uh, in fact, they, they established early on what you would have to consider the, the 18th century version of the, the hillbilly highway. And that hillbilly highway generally went like this. They were in the, in the western Pennsylvania backwoods. They'd get restless, moved south down the Great Valley, through the Shenandoah Valley into the backcountry of Virginia, backcountry of North Carolina. And that's exactly what Kit Carson's people did. It was a perfect, perfect example of the Scots-Irish migration pattern. His great-grandfather, Alexander Carson, went from Scotland to Ulster in about 1700, Ulster to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania in 1738. His grandfather, William, was born in Ulster in 1720 and moved to North Carolina in 1761. His father, Lindsay, who married a woman named Lucy Bradley, moved from North Carolina to Kentucky in about 1792 or 93. Kit Carson was born in Kentucky in 1809. And then Lindsay moved with his, his second wife and the rest of their children to Boone's Lick, Missouri in uh, the 1811 and 1812. And uh, that is the classic Scots-Irish movement pattern. My own family did, I've got some Scots-Irish background, mostly German, but some Scots-Irish. And the Scots-Irish part of my family migrated down that hillbilly highway from Pennsylvania to, to, uh, to Virginia, then Virginia to Kentucky, and then across the Ohio River to southern Indiana, which was a, uh, a, a Scots-Irish enclave in the Midwest there, and, uh, and very culturally uh, frontier-like, um, in some ways to this very day. And, uh, but the, the Pennsylvania down to North Carolina, North Carolina to Kentucky, Kentucky to Missouri pattern is the pattern that Daniel Boone set, and Kit Carson's family followed that. And uh, the historian Daniel Walker Howe points out that, that some of, of this migration wasn't really rationally based. It wasn't really about 
economics because, as he put it, quote, their migration often took them farther away from access to markets and into conflict with native peoples. So it wasn't necessarily self-interest or searching for a better life necessarily that, that sent them down the hillbilly highway. It was just the desire to move, to go into new lands. And uh, when they moved into those new lands in Kentucky and what's now Tennessee in the middle to late part of the 18th century, they were in, in conflict with the native peoples there. They called Kentucky the dark and bloody ground. There was a 40-year struggle for that land with the native peoples that called it their home and their hunting grounds. And that battle really kind of set a template that would be played out over and over on a variety of frontiers. And although Kit Carson was born after that conflict, after Kentucky had been won and, and settled, he did see a replay of it in Missouri during the War of 1812. And the culture that, that borned him was shaped in that conflict, and a lot of their values came out of it, and you'll see them play out in Kit Carson's life in uh, in a very clear clear cultural pattern. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what that culture entailed. The Scots-Irish had some real admirable characteristics. They had fighting spirit to spare. They absolutely were a take-no-shit kind of people. And uh, if you admire people who will stand up for their rights, the, the Scots-Irish are, are your kind of people. They're very democratic. They, they didn't want to bow the knee to kings or, or clerics of any kind. And their, their spirit is very much the American spirit. Um, they were willing to follow strong leaders and often did. And we'll see that with, uh, with Carson. The, uh, the idea of the great captain was a, a real part of the culture, and strong leaders were respected and, and followed. They tended to have very large families, and they were very clannish. And when I say large families, it wasn't just the immediate family, although the, those were often large. Uh, the, the, there were a whole bunch of Carsons. Uh, 18 in, in total, but uh, they also had large extended families, and they all tended to settle in the same regions, and and everybody was somebody's cousin. And, uh, you know, that's a, a caricature and a, a stereotype of, of Appalachian culture to this day, but that's where it comes from. They had very large extended families and were were very loyal and clannish, as they had been all the way back to the Scottish borderlands. They uh, tended to be strongly religious in uh, especially the, the first uh, wave of immigrants that came over. They, they were strong Calvinistic Protestants. Uh, that fell away a little bit in the back country, but uh, Carson's grandfather was a, a Presbyterian minister. So that remained a... Uh, an important part of the culture, and occasionally there were, were major religious revivals. And uh, a lot of the evangelical movement that exists in the uh, 20th, 20th and the 21st century can trace a part of its roots to that Scots-Irish culture. 
there were some real downsides to the culture as well. Um, the restlessness that uh, that seemed to be built into their bones created a kind of impermanence and uh, encouraged some improvidence and profligacy. They 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 didn't. The Germans were well known for building these these fantastic barns, and and if you've ever been to the German country in in Pennsylvania, and they also moved out into the borderlands, but they were more settled people. These Lutheran Germans, and they'd build wonderful barns and stone houses. And if you've ever been in that country at all, it <laughs> I always think it 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 just makes me think of butter. It's uh, this beautiful agricultural land and feels very settled. It feels like the Shire. Uh, Scots-Irish were not like that. They'd, they'd throw up a cabin. Um, they'd girdle trees, which was a way of, of killing the trees and, and cut them down and burn them off. And, and when the soil played out or they just got restless, they would move on. And uh, it was also a very heavy drinking culture. Uh, the moonshine culture that uh, that everybody's familiar with came directly out of that Scots-Irish culture. And that, again, goes back to Ulster and ultimately to the Scottish borderlands. That was part of, part of their culture. And uh, one of the characteristics that, that's going to keep cropping up in the story of, of Kit Carson is this ethic of retributive justice that these people carried in, in just in their guts, their sense of of right and wrong, and their sense of balancing the scales of justice had everything to do with payback, and it wasn't necessarily an eye for an eye. It was if you mess with us, we are going to come down on you like hell's fury, and this played out in feuds on the Scottish borders between the Border Reaver clans. It played out in fighting with the native Irish, uh, the Siege of Londonderry in Ulster. And it played out over and over and over again on the American frontier in this bitter, bitter conflict with the native peoples. And also famously, it played out in family feuds. Everybody's familiar with the Hatfields and McCoys, but that was just one and, and not even the the bloodiest and, and most deadly of the feuds that grew out of that culture. And uh, incidentally, a lot of the Texas feuds, which were pretty intense, were, uh, were a carryover from, from Southern backcountry feuding culture. A lot of those folks descended from, from Scots-Irish and, and it was part of their culture. If somebody hurt you, you hurt them back. And uh, that was definitely part of, of Kit Carson's makeup as well. So they were well-suited to the frontier environment. And uh, I'm going to quote Fisher again at some length on that subject. To the settlers, the American backcountry was a dangerous environment, just as the British borderlands had been. Much of the southern highlands were debatable lands in the broader sense of a contested territory without established government or rule of law. The borderers were more at home than others in this anarchic environment, which was well suited to their family system, their warrior ethic, their farming and herding economy, their attitudes towards land, wealth, and their ideas of work and power. So well adapted was the border culture that other ethnic groups tended to copy it. 
the ethos of the northern British borders came to dominate this dark and bloody ground, partly by force of numbers, but mainly because it was a means of survival in a raw and dangerous world. So this was the culture that shaped the character of Christopher Houston Carson. It's just like a rifle ball is cast in a bullet mold. His character would be further shaped and refined as he moved away beyond the the backcountry into the far west. And he was shaped by the, the mountains and by the native peoples that he would interact with there and the Hispanic people who had been there for longer than there had been American colonies. But uh, he was a son of the Scots-Irish, and he would become an exemplar of that frontier culture and join the elite fraternity of American frontier culture and become a mountain man. And we'll explore his time in the Rocky Mountain fur trade in part two. Thanks for coming to the campfire.